Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Engineering Student Experience Podcast. I'm Paul Nissenson from the Mechanical Engineering Department at Cal Poly Pomona. Nowadays, almost anything you could ever want can be purchased online in just a matter of seconds. You simply enter your credit card information, a shipping address, click a few buttons, and an item magically appears on your doorstep just a few days later. And sometimes you can even get the package on the same day. But what happens when you click that purchase button? Behind the scenes, in countless warehouses across the world, there are many people who are busy fulfilling orders as quickly as possible. And many of those workers are engineers who perform a variety of tasks, such as designing and maintaining mechanical systems like conveyor belts. They're looking for ways to improve the efficiency of various processes inside the warehouse. They ensure the supply chain is maintained and optimized. And of course, they have to design and build the warehouse before people can work inside. Joining me today to talk about warehouses is Mark Rye, who's a senior engineering manager at Under Armour, which is a major sports apparel company. Mark received a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering and a master's degree in systems engineering and is currently working at an Under Armour warehouse in Nashville, Tennessee. Throughout his career, Mark has performed a variety of jobs at warehouses, such as designing warehouses and processes to meet specific needs, performing continual improvement of existing processes, and being a manager where he helps keep workers motivated and helps resolve conflicts. During the interview, Mark describes what it's like to be an engineer in a large warehouse. He talks about the various types of jobs performed by engineers in these facilities and how they work with non-engineers. He gives tips for gaining a foothold in this field. He also talks about the importance of communication. And toward the end, we discuss the future trends in warehouses. We also discuss how the coronavirus pandemic has impacted work inside warehouses and what long-term changes may persist beyond the pandemic. Before we jump into the interview, I wanted to mention that if you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways that you can support it. You can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, and many others. You can rate the podcast and leave comments on whatever app you use to listen to the podcast. And finally, you can help spread the word about the podcast by telling your friends and family and anyone else who you think might enjoy this podcast. If you have any comments about this episode, feel free to email me at tesepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll place the email address in the show notes. I will personally read each email and try my best to respond to them all. All right, so now let's go learn about warehouses from Mark Rye. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, I'm here with Mark Rye today, who's a senior engineering manager at Under Armour, which is a major apparel company. And today we're going to explore the very important, but I think very underappreciated world of warehouses. So first of all, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, before we get into your background and, and a description of what it's like to work in your industry, uh, I do just want to mention up front that that you are probably one of the most patient people I've ever met uh, because we're recording this in April of 2021, 
uh, you first reached out to me. I went back through our email chain and it was August, 2019 when you first uh, reached out and said, Hey, if you'd ever like to interview about, you know, someone from my particular field, I'd be happy to uh, join you for an episode. And I said at the time, I, okay, that that's great. I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll get back to you uh, when I can do some other episodes and, well, then we had the pandemic, which threw every big wrench into everything. So I'm glad that 2020 you know, did happen. That is true. <laughs> I'm glad you were very persistent because I'm really looking forward to today's episode. So before we uh, get into what your industry is like, um, I'd like to get a little bit of background um, for the listeners. So how did you become interested in engineering and what was the path that you took, uh, your educational path, your career path to get to your current position today? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's definitely a lot to unpack there. Um, I guess the, the the short answer is I've always been into kind of mechanical type things. Like I grew up doing, you know, RC cars, uh, you know, motorcycles, things like that. And my my parents instilled that you know I need to be very self sufficient, understand how things work, and understand how how things are put together. So early on, that was probably the easiest uh, you know foray into engineering because it's like. It's just a natural extension of, of trying to understand things. Um, you know, my, my background getting into it really started at, number one, I was a transfer student. So I didn't go to university immediately out of high school because I wasn't the best high school student. Um, so I spent a little bit of time at a local community college, Riverside Community, Norco College. Ended up picking up a couple of associate's degrees and then uh, moved over to Cal Poly shortly thereafter with actual hopes of getting into mechanical engineering. And then quickly finding out that's an awfully popular program and they didn't really have a whole lot of space available. So uh, my, my next uh, choice was industrial engineering. And it definitely was a blessing in disguise because I think it, it really fit my personality and fit my uh, uh, work ethic and approach and, and things I'm looking for in a career. So for listeners who are not familiar with industrial engineering, um, how do you define that discipline? You know, what kind of courses did you take? when you were pursuing your bachelor's degree and, you know, where might you find industrial engineers, um, well, in industry? Yeah, uh, that's definitely a great question. And I think uh, the engineering community as a whole really likes to focus on, you know, the big titans of that world, you know, the civils, the electrical, the mechanical, things like that. And, and I think a lot of people have this conception that, that they get into, you know, designing certain things and all of a sudden that product is now available or that, that thing is there. And there's this huge gap in between that, that helps produce it, helps get it to where it needs to be. And industrial engineers really fill that role where they're the ones that help design the process. And that process could be people, information, uh, machines, you know, whatever it may be to accomplish something. So like in the supply chain world, you know, we're, we're moving boxes from A to B. In a medical world, we're moving patients around from, you know, induct to, uh, you know, seeing their doctors, things like that. So, so the IE world really fills that gap between conceptual design and how we're going to get that product or that thing or that service to wherever it needs to go. Now that I also know that you have a uh, master's degree in systems engineering, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. All, all through Cal Poly, actually. So, so how, how would you define that particular discipline and how does a systems engineering master's degree complement a industrial engineering bachelor's degree? 
So, so the program that, that I went through at Cal Poly with my bachelor's uh, for industrial engineering is, is what I like to call, it's very micro-focused. You're very detail-oriented, very process-oriented. You're, you're learning how to analyze things in a very uh, micro-analytical way. When I was looking to do graduate work, because I, I knew I wanted to get something a little bit more than my bachelor's, just gives me a little more opportunities and, and options for, for careers. I, ha I had to make a choice. Do I want to you know, continue down that rabbit hole and really specialize in those analytical methods, those, those things that, that IE can kind of fall into? Or do I want to go like an MBA, like a business route? Or do I want to go to something else? And what I ended up with was uh, systems engineering because it's, it's definitely more of a macro focus. So kind of like micro and macroeconomics. The systems approach to things is a little bit higher level. And you're learning how individual components kind of fit together instead of those analytical uh, details within an individual process. Both are extremely important and both you have to, to kind of know to, to build something successful. Uh, but the idea was, hey, get into systems engineering because that gives me a little more tools in the toolbox. I can focus on the details if I need to. I can focus on the integration if I need to go that route and ultimately just opened up a little more doors than, than I was hoping. That I was hoping for. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's a perfect way to frame it. So for the listener who might not be, and I meant for myself as well, who's not really familiar with what a, a large warehouse is like, and say for a major company like Under Armour or probably more well known, uh, it would be something like Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, if someone steps into a warehouse like that and walks around and listens and observes. What kind of things would they see? What kind of things would they hear? Give the listener a sense of the, the size of the building, uh, anything that you could do to kind of give them context of what it's like to be in that space. Yeah, so and, and kind of in my, my stints with working at, at Under Armour, which uh, you know I took a little break in between and worked for a 3PL, and it, it, it's really driven by the industry in which you're serving. Um, so there, there are, you know, high-end consumer goods, there's industrial, there's, uh, you know, apparel, like what I work in kind of currently. I mean, there's just so many different industries because literally everything has to be made and has to be shipped from somewhere to somewhere else. In, in kind of my world, the very first thing, and I think Amazon's a little bit um, guilty of pushing this a little bit, is, you know, the first thing you go into a warehouse, you're going to find people. Uh, people are the ones that are, are moving product. People are the ones that are making decisions. I know there's definitely been advancements in automation and, and certain things like that. Um, but I think there's a, a, a stereotype out there right now that, you know, you take 10 people and you can run an Amazon warehouse or uh, an Under Armour warehouse or things like that. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, warehouse operations can be as complicated and, and as systemically driven like like my facility, which has multiple miles of conveyor systems in the building, which is a one you know one million plus square foot facility. Um, so and and we operate multiple multiples of those throughout North America. Or you know when I was working my three PL industry, uh, I had a small customer that fit in like 20, 20,000 square foot. We just put some shelves up and a cart and had people go pick you know tennis shoes out of there. So it, it it's totally driven by the industry that you're serving, and then the capacity that you need, whether it be in you know storage capacity or outbound processing capacity, like hey, I need to get ten thousand orders a day or a hundred orders a day or you know whatever it may be. 
but yeah, I mean, it, it's literally everything from some pallets with stuff on the floor all the way up to, you know, seven miles of automated conveyors in a building. So how long would it take you, do you think, to walk from one length of the warehouse to the other? Uh, it's actually timed for us because, uh, you know, we, we manage uh, productivity standards and things like that. And from one end of the building to the other at a moderate pace, at least in my facility, uh, could be as much as 15 minutes of, of walking. Because yeah, And it's not, you know, as a crow flies, because you do have to go through certain things. You have to be mindful of equipment. So we have uh, pedestrian walk paths and things like that through those types of buildings, which you definitely have to be mindful of. Um, because, you know, forklifts, for example, are many thousands of pounds and usually don't want to put people in front of those if you can, if you can avoid it. So besides industrial engineers like yourself, what kind of engineers would you typically find in a large warehouse for a major company? Are there, you know, mechanical engineers or manufacturing engineers, or um, would you even find civil engineers there? Or, um, and how do those engineers uh, work with different different processes within the warehouse? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. And I, I've been fortunate enough to work with pretty much all of the above. And, and the reason I say that is because IEs are very much the middle ground between so many different disciplines that depending on the phase of the project you're in, so like, for example, here in, in Nashville, you know, we were instrumental in the design of the building, which translates to some structural and civil needs and things like that. So as we help design what the building is going to look like, we interface with those mechanical guys that are helping with conveyor systems. We have some civil guys that are helping with, hey, we need to make sure that this area is structural enough to hang things off the roof. Uh, electrical, same thing. You know, we have integrators with, with all of our systems to, to make that work. So it really depends on the phase of the project. Most of what I do in my team, you know, it, it's pretty much the whole gamut. Uh, most of your mechanical civils are going to be early on in like facility designs and implementations and things like that. And then you'll get a lot of the IEs and the manufacturing engineers more towards the back end where, you know, they're running the operation, they're doing continuous improvement, you know, all, all sorts of things like that. So I know that you have some experience in facility design and continual improvement. Mm -hmm. Could you give an example of maybe like a a specific project you worked on, assuming that you're allowed to talk about those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so that way the listener can have like a, you know a specific, a concrete example um, of that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I've been privileged enough to to wear many different hats. I'd, I'd like to say in my career so far, which has only been you know less than a decade, so it really hasn't been a whole long time. But you know, I, I've been in, involved with everything from facility design where hey, we're doing the network analysis. We're saying, hey, we need to support two-day shipping for customers to this particular geographical region. Where do we put, where, you know, where do we put those warehouses? Where's the best place to house those? So, so doing those types of analyses and trying to figure that out is a big one. Um, I've done physical building design where, okay, hey, this building needs to service X, Y, and Z business channels. Like wholesale is extremely different than direct-to-consumer, like e-com retail is totally different than those two combined. So you have to kind of figure out what, what your building is going to do. Is it going to specialize or is it going to be a jack of all trades? Um, so, so designing those processes and, and systems that go into those four walls are, are something that we've, we've done. 
Um, and then on the other, other end of that, you know, the continuous improvement piece is really taking those existing processes because nothing, nothing is ever set in stone. Business changes all the time. You know, the business that we had in 2015 is different than the business we have in 2020. So we have different requirements and we have to make the decision, do we have the right um, infrastructure in place to support those or do we need to invest and, and figure something out for, for the future? So it, it's really gone that whole spectrum, I guess you could say, from conceptual design all the way through implementation and steady state, uh, you know, continuous improvement options. So in your current role as a senior engineering manager, what is your day-to-day life like? Yeah, so so for me, uh, number one, we run a pretty lean team. We don't have a huge team or anything like that. Uh, we have three million plus square foot facilities in, in North America. Um, and we have site engineers, you know, dedicated to each one of those areas. So for me, it's number one, you know, being able to look a little bit ahead of, uh, you know, where we're at today, figure out what do we need tomorrow or next month, next year, and then kind of help predict out or, or try to figure out, do we need capital? Do we need um, improvement in certain areas to, to facilitate those goals? So that's probably like 50% of my day. Then the other 50% is managing people, uh, solving those types of little problems that come up at, at individual sites. And it could be anything from, you know, someone's having a, a, you know, a classic people issue with something, or it could be, you know, hey, we're having some difficulty integrating with our operations team. They're not buying into to the ideas or things that we're trying to do. Uh, so, so being able to, you know, troubleshoot those, get people working together, and and ultimately move forward with whatever it is we need to do. Um, that's probably the other fifty percent of my day. So I, I imagine communication is incredibly important in your job. Perhaps just the everyday communication with the people that are that you're supervising. But it, could you also speak a little bit, maybe, about um, you know how much of your time is dedicated to things like? report writing and giving presentations, things that a lot of engineers, when they first get interested in engineering, they probably don't really think about much. Uh, and, and you hit it right off the bat, like communication, soft skills, all that stuff. I've, I've turned down more applications for qualified engineers because of that than I've ever done anything from the technical side. So for example, you know, if you graduate from Cal Poly or something like that, I, I know you're technically sound. You, you made it through, it's not an easy program, it's not an easy school. So, so those are, are less important to me. Being able to, to jump into those soft skills, to be able to communicate is, is of, of importance. And that's more so for me and our team because we're so thin on, on you know, engineers on our sites, we run such a lean team. Our expectation is that those engineers can communicate up to the senior leaders, communicate laterally to their peers, and communicate towards the people they're working with, which could be anything from an operations manager uh, to to a floor teammate to, to you know absolutely anything. So having those skills right there is probably the most important thing that we have out there. So in our classes, we we give students those technical skills, and some classes we have students write reports uh, for labs, for example, or maybe they have to give a presentation in front of class. But is there anything that you could recommend for students to get better at those soft skills? 
Uh, absolutely. And I, I absolutely love it when people reach out to me to, to, you know, get that exposure to industry. And I think it's a, a huge um, miss for a lot of students that they don't simply ask companies or ask industries that they're interested in, like, hey, can I come see your facility? Can I ask you guys questions? Can I do all of that? And, and through that process of getting kind of boots on the ground with the areas you're kind of interested in, I think really develops a lot of those communication skills. Um, I know there's a stereotype around engineers not being the most social and things like that. Um, but really just, it, it, to me, it's just repetition. Just get out there, interview with people, um, put those resumes out there. Even if it's a job that you're probably not going to take because of X, Y, and Z, getting that interview experience, getting that, that face time in front of people helps sharpen those skills. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's all about just going out there and asking. Unless it's something super secret, like with the government or something, most places I know of were, are happy to bring in students like, hey, this is what we do. This is, you know, I'm going to show you around. Uh, this is what you should probably do if you want to get into this industry. Just, just getting that exposure is probably the, the number one thing. Because I think there's a lot of people, and it's not so much a, a failure of, of Cal Poly as, as much as I see other sites, because Cal Poly does encourage people to go out to industry, I think. But in, in other schools, I, I, I often find our interview, if they, like if they make it to an interview with me, this is the first time they've ever even talked to anyone in the industry. And, and that to me is a, is, is a huge miss. So when, when you were going through um, uh, community college and going um, to, to Cal Poly Pomona to get your bachelor's degree, did you have any idea that you would be working in this field? Like were there... And if not, were there certain projects or any clubs that you joined that uh, helped prepare you to work in this field? It's going to sound kind of weird. I, I worked a, a customer service job from high school all the way through college. And the more I've done, like I did that job for like seven or eight years, made me realize that I, I, I don't mind working with people for the most part. Um, so so ha- being able to have those skills and have those conversations were big. Um, I definitely didn't expect myself to work in a uh, supply chain type role. I actually geared all my classes around manufacturing because I, I really enjoyed building things like physical things and, and really working with my hands for things like that. And, you know, project wise, I had a few classes that kind of clicked for me on things that I enjoyed doing and then mirroring that up with that kind of human interaction you know 50 percent is that engineering design of hey we're going to put x y and z together and make this thing uh, which typically was like a process type operation and then the other 50 percent was how do we communicate this to people how do we build these presentations because i could have the best project idea in the world but if i can't get people on board or can't get people to see the vision it, it really wasn't gonna gonna work out for for anyone so in your particular position, how much travel do you do? And, and have you found um, your willingness to travel and maybe even relocate? Has that helped you advance in your career, do you think? Uh, a- a- absolutely. W- willingness to travel because geographic areas, um, particularly in like Southern California, don't always lend itself to supply chain and distribution operations because it's just so expensive. You know, land and all that stuff really really goes there, labor costs, all of the above. 
So really being able to travel has opened up a lot of doors for me because I've seen other things in other uh, areas of the country or even other countries. Um, in terms of total travel, you know, early on in my career, I didn't travel a ton, maybe 20% of my time. Like it's not a lot, but, but enough. In my current role, I've, I've definitely traveled a lot more because I've had to be on site for projects. I've had to, you know, onboard new engineers, uh, be out there for checkups. You know, just just understanding the problem uh, can really only get you so far over Zoom calls, or, you know, instead of being in person. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've definitely traveled quite a bit for my role. Everything from SoCal to the South, uh, up towards Baltimore, Canada. Uh, all, all of that type of stuff. So I've, I've been privileged enough to to see those operations and see how those uh, regions uh, operate. I guess is the best best word for it. Yeah, and for the listener, uh, Mark right now is is joining me from Nashville. So you've moved from Southern California all the way to Nashville um, to be in your current position. So it's it's much more convenient flying from from the east to west than it is west to east it's it's rough going from socal to baltimore sometimes those those three hour time differences suck <laughs> yeah yeah i've uh, gone to plenty of conferences uh on the east coast and it can be mm-hmm. exhausting oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> so if i went right now to underarmor.com and i placed a order online for maybe a t-shirt what happens next in your facility yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, before it even shows up for you, for example, we have to have stock for things like that. Um, and, and even that process is changing a little bit as we've you know, gotten a little closer to the customer on, on how that works. But it's always going to check stock, for example. Once those orders are placed, then you have to kind of decide where's that inventory coming from. Is that inventory um, coming out of Baltimore going to Southern California? Do we have inventory in our local Southern California facility? And there's you know rules that are programmed in place because you often have to balance the cost of say shipping versus timing and you know being able to get that product to the customer in a certain amount of time. Once those orders um, are, are allocated to whatever building they're going to, we receive the order. And I say we, we as in the, the distribution network receives that order, we pick that order. Um, and then we go through the process of boxing that stuff up for the customer. And those boxing procedures can be something as simple as just throw it in a box and it's good to go. Uh, some customers add certain things to it, like custom gift messaging, all of that stuff. Those are not automated processes. Those are something that people physically have to do at our, at our sites to, to do that. Um, so getting all that done, uh, making sure that we're still compliant with whatever shipping carrier we're using because UPS is different than FedEx, which is different than USPS. Everyone does things different and have different requirements. And then once that order is complete, box is sealed up and good to go, that's when the carrier picks it up and it's kind of out of our hands for, for what we've done. So we've taken that that raw material, that, that just pure order. We moved those raw materials into some finished state for whatever the customer needs. And then we shipped it. In your particular company, Mark, Under Armour, you guys make a lot of apparel. And I know for myself that if I have a certain shirt or pants that uh, that I'm going to you know keep for years and years, I would definitely want to try it on first. And many companies are now allowing you to, uh, you know, once you purchase 
the the item of, of clothing. You can try it on. If you don't like it, you can return it to get a different size. How does that complicate things for you? Oh, man, it, it, it definitely adds a whole new layer to everything. So, so reverse logistics in and of itself is, is difficult because, you know, if you think about it from the manufacturer standpoint, like when we order something from a manufacturer, we tell the manufacturer how we need it to be boxed up, how we need it sent to us. The, the customer compliance that, that, you know, customers at the end of the scale will send stuff back. I mean, it, it's a hodgepodge. Some people throw stuff in the box. Some people fold it neatly. Some people don't open it. Some people uh, send us other companies stuff. Like we've, we've had that happen quite a bit. So, so the whole reverse logistics just adds a whole nother layer to it because you have to add inspections, you have quality audits, you have, have to get that inventory back into a state that could be either sold or liquidated to other areas. Um, sometimes they send us stuff that's broken. You know, how do we destroy this stuff? You know, what, what, what are the, the requirements for that? It, it really adds a whole separate layer of complexity to things that could already be complicated. You know, at the end of the day, I like to, I mentioned this uh, before, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're just moving boxes from A to B, but B to A isn't always the, the easiest way either. And, and it's really only going to get more and more um, prevalent as we, as a culture and society transition from these big box retail type stores to more online, more direct to consumer. Um, returns is going to be a, a big component of that. Otherwise, you're just not going to be successful or you're not going to be competitive with, with what you're trying to do. So we're, we're recording this in April 2021, and it seems, crossing fingers here, that the pandemic is beginning to, it looks like we're beginning to be closer to the end than the beginning. Uh, you know, vaccines are being rolled out, and um, it looks like in many states anyways, the cases, uh, the, the rate of cases are going down. Um, states are beginning to open up. But we've been through this for about a year now, and so what I'm really interested in knowing is how did the pandemic impact work inside the inside warehouses? Uh, there's a lot of people, right? And so, and mm -hmm. I think that we really saw the importance during the pandemic of having the ability to simply place orders online so we don't have to go to the store to get every single item, which, you know, hopefully would, would keep people from, from getting sick. So, mm -hmm. um, or at least exposing them to the risk of getting sick. So um, what I'm wondering is how did the pandemic impact work inside the warehouses? And do you see any kind of like permanent changes after the pandemic is finally completely behind us? Man, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. It's definitely changed quite a bit in the warehousing world. Um, you know, depending on the industry you're in, it could have been feast or famine. You know, I, I know some people that have had, you know, very difficult times keeping the doors open because the industry that they serve uh, either wasn't being critical or, you know, they just didn't, they couldn't absorb that, that disruption in the supply chain. And at the same time, I've seen other, other industries where they can't keep up with the demand. It's three times, four times, five X what it's ever been before. Um, so, so we're having to really get creative on, on those warehouse operations. And what I mean by that is, I mean, everything as simple as, you know, getting a couple hundred people clocked into the building. You know, we have to be very conscious of social distancing and making sure people are safe around that. 
making sure we understand what people are going to do. The processes that we have designed for the building have to have that in mind. You know, in, in times past, we wouldn't think about the proximity of people to, to one another. We'd always think about uh, congestion of material and kind of like a, a different type of uh, approach to that, I guess you can say. So, so the whole pandemic has really changed the way we think about a lot of things. Um, and, and even just getting people in the building, you know, having having people show up for work was, was a challenge and, and has been a challenge for many companies that, that I know of. Uh, so I've seen in, in the industry, people even innovating to the point where, you know, how do we get work to the people from home or more traditional warehousing type operations? So for example, I've seen uh, a company try to figure out how do we enable people at home to drive warehouse forklifts uh, wirelessly through the internet. Like they clock in like a, like a normal job and then they can drive the, the forklift from the comfort of their own home in order to, to do that. So I've, I've seen some pretty interesting things come out of this pandemic and a lot of things have definitely changed. Some of which will probably go back to, uh, you know, to normal operations whenever normalcy resumes. Uh, but there's definitely been a, I think, permanent shift of, of how we think about commerce. How do we think about fulfilling these, these demands? Because, you know, that, that in-person drive is, has been less and, and people are having to adapt to, to new areas and new, new methods for that. So the supply chain world's going to adapt for that as well. Recently in the news, there was a, a particular incident uh, in the Suez Canal. Uh, mm -hmm. involving a ship called the Ever Given that got, uh, due to, I guess it was due to high winds. It ended up getting stuck and blocking the, the entire canal. Fortunately, mm -hmm. it was able to be um, freed within about a week or so. But when you were watching that on the news, what were you thinking about someone who has a, has a strong background in things like logistics and supply chains? What, what was going on through your mind when you were watching that unfold in the news? Oh my gosh. I mean, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars an hour in, you know, reduced capacity through those, through those areas. When I see things like that, I think of the consequences of it, of what we're going to see at some point. For example, you know, uh, raw materials flow often through those types of waterways. So we're not going to necessarily feel, when I say we, it's like the North American region, we're not going to feel the effects of it probably for a few weeks or a couple of months, because as those raw materials go in, they go to the manufacturers, everything just starts kind of stacking up and, and starts getting delayed from that point. So, so oftentimes, you know, when, when you have those huge disruptions, we've seen them in, in California in the past with like port disruptions with, uh, you know, trade disputes and, and labor unions, things like that. Um, I think that was like 2014 or 15. And it severely crippled planning and forced a lot of the supply chains to be very nimble of how they manage labor, manage the process coming in uh, because it, it, it just stacked everything together. And one of the things about supply chain that's super important is most of this stuff is, is planned down to the day, down to the minute, down to the hour. So, so as you start throwing rocks in the pond and creating waves and ripples, it, it really has a lot of downstream effects uh, that, that we feel in the warehousing. And sometimes that gets passed on to consumers uh, you know, down, down the line as well. 
So earlier you mentioned automation as being a sort of a long-term trend that you've seen growing in warehouses and, and supply chains over the last, you know, let's say five to 10 years. What other long-term trends have you observed? And let's say for the next five to 10 years, uh, what are some of the trends that you anticipate uh, being, uh, you know, really important and growing? So I imagine probably automation would be would be mm-hmm. growing, um, but also things like maybe you know AI and what what do you anticipate playing a larger and larger role in the years ahead? Yeah, I mean, I mean, first and foremost, since we're kind of talking about IEs as well, um, we can't get enough people, qualified people. Like it, it is very difficult to hire people right now. So, so as the supply chain world increases, as it becomes more, for lack of a better word, integrated to the end consumer, like the end consumers feel a lot, a lot more of those consequences at the warehouses, we're going to need a lot more people. It's, it's just extremely difficult to hire for right now. Um, secondly, you know, in terms of innovations, I, I think there's going to be a new demand, more DTC or direct to consumer where people aren't going to be as comfortable going to the big box stores. People aren't going to be as comfortable doing that. Uh, Amazon's already changing the game on, on expectations around shipping time. And, you know, when do you receive those products? 10 years ago, I'd be happy if my online order shipped within them four or five days a week. Nowadays, it's like, if it's not shipping within eight hours, I'm, I'm super upset about it. I'm calling Amazon, like, what's going on? But, but those types of trends really force supply chains to change and modify their behavior. And, and not only that, but also modify their strategy for how they're going to service those areas. So instead of being these ginormous 5 million square foot Amazon warehouses that service this large regional area, I kind of expect it to get to be more local, more smaller, smaller piece, piecemeal uh, networks together. Uh, to, to, to really support that. And what I mean by that is if, if you start getting into like the Amazon, you know, Prime Now, or it's five-hour shipping or four-hour shipping or things like that, like you can't do that if, if your facility is one state over. It has to be in your same area. So I expect to see a lot more of that. And that creates all sorts of different challenges around inventory allocation, your order profiles. You know, does Southern California order the same things as, as Baltimore, Maryland? And, and really being able to allocate those resources effectively is going to be a huge one. So, so in my mind, you know, we're talking IEs, optimization is going to be big. Uh, people that can do operations research type problems and, and support that, I think it's going to be huge. Data science is already a big thing. I think it's only going to get bigger because those data sets are getting bigger today. Um, and we're adding more complexity around our network uh, strategy as well. So, uh, Mark, you've been so generous with your time. Um, I've absolutely loved this conversation. Um, before I let you go, though, you mentioned that there are not enough industrial engineers out there. And, uh, you know, part of the purpose of this podcast is to hopefully inspire maybe high school students, um, you know, to get more interested in various fields in engineering and, and maybe to become engineers themselves. How can a current high school student or even a college student right now, maybe who's in their first couple years of, of college, um, how can they better prepare themselves for having, you know, a career in the same field as you? Um, you know, how can they get a foothold in the industry? Uh, would taking certain engineering courses or even, even certain non-engineering courses help them 
better prepare for your industry? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. And, and kind of like what I mentioned earlier, just being able to go out and ask people in industry or companies in the industry you want to work in for advice. It's such an underused uh, avenue into those fields. So if you're into motorcycles, you're into, you know, game development, you're on, into whatever, go to those industries and just ask them, okay, I want to learn more about it. Nine times out of 10, people will will go out of their way, especially to help, you know, high schoolers, college students. Um, in terms of classes, I'm going to be very honest, build those soft skills, find things out there that will help you be a better communicator and be a better team you know, member, because no one's ever going to do these types of jobs in a vacuum. Uh, I've not run into any one of those people that did everything by themselves solo from start to finish. So, you know, the things that you really need to get comfortable with are talking to people, giving presentations, you know, trying to understand how do you get those ideas from your head or your team to the people that can help make that happen, which is often senior leadership, senior management, owners of companies, all of that stuff. So being able to communicate those is probably the most underrated skill in engineering, at least for my industry, mainly because we're such the, the go-between for so many different disciplines, whether it be engineering in and of itself, like mechanical and civil and the things we talked about earlier, but also to the operations folks, also to IT, also to HR. You know, we, we really have our hand in, in a lot of things. So if you're the person that really likes to be that change maker, I guess you could say, that, that person that has a lot of influence in a lot of different areas, uh, I mean, IE is definitely the, the route for you. Um, and then subsets of that would be like manufacturing, which is such a huge thing in and of itself as well. IE and, and MFE kind of go very, very hand in hand. But yeah, I mean, we, we just can't get enough people right now. So more people uh, that we can get, the better. Uh, but don't be afraid to, to develop those soft skills. Because if you get through a technical program, you're going to be technically sound. And, you know, we're going to train you anyway as, as you come into those entry-level positions. But yeah, that's, that's probably my advice for getting into this type of work. Well, Mark, this has been, this has been really fun. And uh, you definitely gave me a much greater appreciation of logistics and warehouses. Uh, I actually learned quite a bit and I hope the listener, I'm sure the listener did as well. So I'm, I'm really glad that we connected and uh, yeah, I wish you luck in your, in your career. Very much appreciate it. Yeah. Take care, Mark. I want to once again, thank Mark for sharing his experiences of working inside large warehouses. I hope this episode has given you a better idea of the job opportunities that exist in an industry that most of us really take for granted, but which is really vital for the economic prosperity of the entire world. As Mark mentioned, there is a strong demand for engineers in this field. So if any of the engineering-related jobs discussed in this episode sound interesting to you, well, there likely will still be a lot of jobs out there available for the foreseeable future. So take care, everyone, and goodbye for now.